0: cloud and rain and everything else. It's so easy for people to get depressed with weather like that. Would you kind of agree? But remember, it is a night the Lord hath made. You shall rejoice in it regardless of the weather. So, first of all, let's try this. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, it needs work, but that's okay. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off with teaching you an old Talmudic prayer. This comes from the ancient rabbis. It's not from the Bible, but it's from the ancient rabbis. There's an old Talmudic prayer. Would you agree with me? Sometimes short folk sayings have a lot of wisdom. Would you agree? Right? Well, there's an old Talmudic prayer that goes like this. Lord, hear not the prayer of the traveler. That's the whole prayer. Lord, hear not the prayer of the traveler. But think how much wisdom there is in that. I'm a traveler. I'd always like to have good weather. But the farmer needs the rain. So never nay say the rain. Amen? And tonight we're going to be talking about what is absolutely the single most important subject we could talk about scientifically when it comes to the acceptance of creation versus evolution. We're going to be talking about time. You have to understand that time is the critical issue. Think with me for just a moment. And remember, I do like response, and this is just a a special night service, so you can respond. Right? Right? Right. Now, please tell me if, if, I did use the word if, the Earth and the universe were old, would that make evolution true? That's right, it wouldn't make it true. It would say maybe there'd been enough time, but it wouldn't make it true, correct? But if the Earth and the universe are young, then no theory of evolution can possibly be true. As a matter of fact, I'd like you to think about something. Do you remember in school, maybe high school, possibly college? They told you, taught you how to destroy somebody's position, their philosophy, and so forth. And they said what you do is you think about it like a stool or a table, a chair that has legs, pillars, columns that hold up that proposition, and that if you could destroy one of those legs, one of those columns, one of those pillars, the whole philosophy would fall. Do you remember that? Well, evolution is like a table with one leg. It's the leg of time. If you knock the leg of time out from underneath evolution, every single theory of evolution will fall. And so the evolutionist lives and dies by eight words. These eight words are so important you need to memorize them. It's not difficult. But the eight words that the evolutionist lives and dies with, it it doesn't matter what I can show an evolutionist that evolution is not true. Their immediate response will be, yeah, but give me enough time and anything can happen. That's the evolutionary mantra those eight words give me enough time and anything can happen and the evolutionist lives and dies by that statement and think with me for just a moment that statement on the surface might sound logical it might sound plausible but please tell me If something is logical or plausible, does that necessarily make it true? Hello? No. Simply because something sounds logical, simply because something sounds plausible does not make it true. And if you think about it, you know, if you go down deep and you think about it, there's lots of things you can think about that given enough time would never happen and so the statement that give me enough time and anything can happen sounds logical, sounds plausible on the surface, but if you just stop and think about it, it's not true. And so we're talking about the issue of time. Now, the evolutionist believes that time is the key factor in the plot, so to speak, and they live and die by that statement. But let's start talking about why should this be important to you. As Christians, why should this be important to you? The the scientific evidence, the biblical statements about creation 6,000 years ago. Now, obviously, last night, if you were here, I think we did a pretty good job of showing you, uh, uh, even then, last night, just the one piece of evidence that the earth is young. You remember? Come on, only 4,500 years worth of mud at all the mouths of all the great rivers, right? A child can remember that, you've got to admit. And tonight, we're going to show you a lot of other easy-to-remember ones, too. But why should this be important to you, this issue of time? Now, I want to make a stipulation tonight. Understand, what you believe about the age of the earth and the universe is not the salvation issue. Did we hear that? Okay. What you believe about the age of the earth and the universe is not the salvation issue. The salvation issue is your relationship with the Father through the Son, correct? Okay. With that, then, in mind, why should this be so important? Because the age of the earth and the universe are not the salvation issue, but they are critical to the gospel. Let me explain why. Think with me. There are about half of the Christians in the world who believe in millions and billions of years. They think that they can compromise evolutionary time into the Bible. We need to lovingly correct them. Hello? Not beat them on the head, but we need to lovingly correct them. So you need to know about this. But what is the issue? Why is it critical to the gospel? Think with me. If you have a person who believes in millions and billions of supposed years, as you will see tonight, for which there is no proof, but if you believe that, what is the only reason you would want to believe it? The only reason you would want to believe it is to believe that life and death have been going on for millions and billions of years. Now if that is true, it would negate the cross. Think with me. If life and death had been going on for millions and billions of years, then the death of one man on the cross is meaningless because human sin didn't cause death. If human sin didn't cause death, then the death of Christ on the cross, can't atone for it. You see, if you believe in millions and billions of years, you're saying death is common. That It wasn't caused by human sin. And the death of one man on a cross becomes meaningless. It is only when you understand that the earth and the universe are only 6,000 years old, that God created it perfect, whole, complete, that he put two people there, Adam and Eve, gave them the right to mess things up, which they certainly did, Can I get an amen there? Uh, But it is then and only then that God caused death to come into the universe. Remember what Paul says in Romans 5. It was through the sin of the first man, Adam, that death came into the universe. He would also say it's through the death of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that death is conquered. Is that correct? And so while it is not the salvation issue, and I want to stipulate that, It is nonetheless critical to the gospel. I hope you can see that now. And let's talk about this concept of time. We're going tonight show very simple, easy ways to know that there hasn't been millions and billions of years. But think with me, for instance. Um, I can go outside right now, pick up any rock I want to around here, and I can certainly find some here, can't I? Yeah. 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 So I can pick up any rock I want to, I can claim any age I want to for it. You might disagree with me, but you cannot scientifically prove that I am wrong. Did you hear that? I can claim any age I want to it, you may disagree with me, but it's irrelevant because you cannot scientifically prove that I'm wrong. Think with me, when you pick up rocks, so they come with little white strings, little white tags attached saying I'm 10 million years old and signed by a scientist who was there at the time? Hello. You know, that's one of the things about evolution. They don't have a witness. Hello? We do. We've got a witness. They don't got a witness. And again, think about this issue of time. Uh, I was once asked to write an article uh, for a Christian magazine. And when you're asked to write articles for publications, sometimes they will give you the title, ask you to write the article. Sometimes they say, pick your own title, write your own article this particular occasion they gave me the title of the article the article was to be entitled how do you date a rock my first response was first you have to ask her well the guys got it anyway Uh, so let's start taking a look at this issue of time now first of all this is a rock we found not too long ago Some of you might recognize it now when we found this rock did it come with a little white string, a little white tag attached saying how old it was? Excuse me? No? Then how did we know how old it is? Or can we figure out a way to figure out how old it is? And so tonight what we're looking at is, are the Earth and the Irish really billions of years old as evolutionists claim? Or are they in fact young? That's what we're looking at tonight. Now, With that in mind, we're going to say, is the Earth old? And did it all start with something called a Big Bang? Now, I'm sure all of you have heard about this concept of the Big Bang. bang. Is that correct? Now, I'd like to ask you just one logical question. You don't have to know anything about science to ask and answer this question. Uh, Please tell me, when was the last time you saw an explosion construct a building? I'm sorry, was that too fast for you? I'll repeat the question. When was the last time you saw an explosion construct a building? Never, and you never will, is that correct? The fact of the matter is that explosions destruct, they do not construct, is that correct? You have to understand that the various theories, and there's more than one, but the various theories of the Big Bang are only about 100 years old and have been scientifically disproven by evolutionists. Even evolutionists have disproven the Big Bang never happened. And if you do not believe me, I have a free article on my website that I wrote just a couple of years ago, and I'm not particularly pointing it out because I wrote it. What I'm pointing out is I'm quoting major evolutionists, astronomers and astrophysicists who now tell us the Big Bang never happened. However, the evidence that they have found proves creation. It's kind of an interesting article if you want to get a little deeper, okay? But the fact of the matter is, the Big Bang's been disproven even by evolutions. They have now abandoned it. They are moving away from it by the thousands. But of course, they're still teaching it in school, is that right? Why? Because they've got nothing else to replace it. You see, if the Big Bang is not true, then there is a God, and that's not what they're going to allow in school, hello? But, But nonetheless, what we're looking at is, is the universe... Uh, and please notice, 13.82 billion years old. That's the latest number, okay? I would point out that this number is constantly changing. Every year or two, it makes the universe older. Uh, I remember just three or four years ago, it was 13.7. But today, they say it's 13.82. Now, do you understand why I emphasize the two? Two. Well it makes it makes you think they actually measured it. Hello but we're building a new astronomy platform satellite right now to replace Hubble and it is going to see farther into space than Hubble ever saw and well, they'll just make the universe older hello but of course it's all the same age <laughs> now so is the universe thirteen point eight two billion years old, or can you really trust the Bible about it all being young? That's what we're looking at tonight. So, when I say that the Earth and the universe are young, to somebody, they'll say, you believe the Earth and the universe are young? And what is their immediate response? Now, I, I, I'm sure if you've ever done this, you've had this response. But when you tell somebody that doesn't know that you believe the young Earth, young universe, what is their very first typical response? Their very first typical response is but wait, but wait, you can't be serious, right? And then they will say this, doesn't it have to be old because? Now, depending upon the person you're talking to, depending upon their level of education, experience, uh, and so forth, the list may be longer or shorter, but they are going to give you a litany, a list of why they believe the Earth and the universe are old and so on their list they're going to have various items and again they may be some that I'm about to mention they may have others but generally speaking their list will be something like this they will say doesn't it have to be old because doesn't it take millions and billions of years for rocks to form? well in the Mount St. Helens presentation that we do, we point out that no rocks form instantaneously today we can make granite in a laboratory Um, doesn't it take millions and billions of years for diamonds and other gems forms, uh, to form? I mean, don't they tell you, uh, they, you know, you go to a, a jewelry store and they romance the stone. That, yeah, that's how they sell jewelry. They romance the stone. You see this diamond here? This diamond is 10 million years old. That's why we're going to charge you so much. But again, did it have a little white string and a little white tag attached to it? You see, they say that diamonds are formed in the earth, deep down, Uh, under tremendous pressures and heat and slowly rise to the surface but the fact of the matter is, as you'll find out tonight, it's not true. And they'll say, doesn't it take millions and billions of years for stalactites and stalagmites to form? We're going to show that no, it doesn't. What about the polar ice caps to form? I mean, there are, uh, well, there are people like Igor, that's my pet name for Al Gore, that will tell you the polar ice caps are three million years old, and so forth. But tonight we're going to prove that that's not true. Again, what about thousands of feet of sedimentary rock layers to form? Well, last night we took a look at the Flood of Noah, which made thousands of feet of dried out mud layers. But tonight we'll prove to you it all happened very quickly, as we did last night. Or what about deep canyons to be cut into rock layers? Well, first of all, in the Mount St. Helens presentation that we do, we prove that the Grand Canyon was cut very, very quickly. But at Mount St. Helens on March the 19th of 1982, we saw a canyon, 140th the size of the Grand Canyon made in 24 hours. It does not take a long time. Also they'll say, what about dinosaur fossils? Now remember, I didn't exactly go through this yesterday but i was raised as an evolutionist but it's much worse than that i actually grew up on the campus at the university of california berkeley yes my father was a student there then a professor there and i actually well at one time he was even the secretary to the president and i actually grew up on the campus at cal berkeley and when i was not learning evolution in the public schools which is the only thing they taught in berkeley back in the fifties But when I was not learning my evolution at school, I used to spend my time in the paleontology laboratories at the University of California, Berkeley, and when I was eight years old, I already knew so much about fossils, dinosaurs, evolutionary theory, that in my school, they started borrowing me from one classroom to the other in the California public school system, and I was teaching the other children about dinosaurs, fossils, and evolutionary theory, because I knew more about it than the teachers did. That's an absolutely true story. And when you were in school, public school, didn't they tell you it takes millions of years for dinosaur fossils to fossilize, right? But tonight you're going to find out it's not true. And, of course, they will also talk about coal. They will say that at least the vast majority of coal in the world formed during what's called the Carboniferous Period. And they say that that is 300 to 360 million, supposed years ago. As I will show you tonight, coal forms actually quite quickly. And the same thing, of course, is true of the fossil wood, the fossilized forests we see around the world, the petrified forests. But the same thing is true. It doesn't take long at all. As a matter of fact, I'll slip you a little extra one for tonight for coming. This is kind of a payback for you making the effort. There there was a man some years ago who wanted to make very expensive houses, construct very expensive houses, and in the kitchen he wanted to use petrified wood for the countertops it would have been absolutely remarkably beautiful but incredibly expensive To try to collect that much petrified wood and actually make countertops with it from from private property would have been very very expensive and so he did some experiments and found out how to make it and today he's got a patent and he can make petrified wood in four hours Hello that's just a freebie folks I don't normally include that one and then finally of course I don't care whether it's a longer list a shorter list has these items or other items almost every person you talk to will come up with this last one they'll say doesn't it all have to be old because doesn't it take millions and billions of years for light to reach us from distant stars and distant galaxies they think that's a killer The truth of the matter is, it doesn't take millions and billions of years, and we're going to stop with that tonight. So we have two complete presentations on DVDs. One of them, How Do You Date a Rock? That's the other one we're not doing tonight, but it has many more of these. Tonight we're doing Why I Believe in a Young Creation. On this particular presentation, I'd like to start with something that will appeal to the ladies. So ladies, are you listening? can't hear you. Ladies, are you listening? Come on, ladies, I am really here to help you tonight, and you're going to find out how much help I'm trying to be here, okay? Please tell me something, ladies. Do you like the bling? Apparently, you are not all familiar with that slang terminology. The bling is, how many of you like shiny gemstones? That's the bling. So how many of you like the bling? Oh, I have several going, oh, yes, and a couple smiling that aren't saying a thing, but they're smiling. Uh, well for the rest of you just blink your eyes (laughs) well I've got something for you tonight now I am really trying to help you and guys you need to be listening to this now I say the earth and the universe have to be young and they have to be young because and again I always start with something for the ladies on this particular one now that is a natural opal from Australia mined by hand ladies would you agree that's a right pretty rock Aha! Well this is a natural gemstone mined by hand in Australia. However this is not a man-made opal. This is a man-grown opal. And it grew in that jar right there. Ladies, do I have your attention? Yes, you see What we're looking at is, does it take millions of years for gemstones like opals and diamonds to form? And, of course, what about gold? Don't you hear an awful lot about gold these days? I mean, every radio, TV, ads out, the you know. Anyway, um, so let's take a look. Does it take a long time for opals, diamonds to form, gold to form? Now, again, this is a natural piece of opal mined by hand in Australia. Again, ladies, I think you'll agree that's a right pretty rock. I wish you could really see it as bright as it should be there, but, but this is a man-grown opal. You cannot tell the difference in structure, but this one was grown in that jar. You can actually see it growing in the lens right there, and it only took three months. You know, it's funny. Usually I hear this question, can I get the formula? Well, first of all, how many ladies here actually have genuine opal jewelry? By, by the way, if you've got it, it's genuine, I've got to tell you. Okay? One hand. Okay, I hope the guys you were noticing, the ones that didn't raise their hand. Um, come on, guys. Valentine's Day is coming up. Hello? <laughs> Trying to catch them. I can't catch them. But, but birthdays, anniversaries, Christmas, I mean, it's all coming, you know. And... Uh, so, so, well, uh, first of all, I want you to know, if you do have opal jewelry, it's real, it's natural. Uh, this is an experiment done by a Christian creation-believing scientist in Australia, and he found that if you take the right chemicals, put them in a jar, sit them on a shelf, three months later you can grow an opal. But he doesn't sell them, he doesn't put them on the market. So if you've got opal jewelry, it's real. But this does show it doesn't take millions of years, is that Right. Yeah, because there's no manipulation here. Uh, Excuse me, sir? Well, in one sense of the word. No, that's okay. I'm right there with you. But that'd be a pearl. Anyway, (laughs) but it's a gem of a thought. Now, well, if you're not interested in opals... Please tell me, ladies, you did say you like the bling, so please tell me, what about this rock? Oh, come on, ladies, that's a nice rock. That is the largest blue diamond in the world. That is the Hope Diamond today on display at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And evolutionists will tell you it takes millions and millions of years for diamonds to form deep inside the earth, millions of years to rise to the surface where we find them however if you think about it just stop and think you know it's not true you really do know it's not true if you just stop and think about it because if you stop and think about it you'll remember that well since 1953 we've been making man-made diamonds now these are not gem quality these are industrial grade diamonds when you see people um, cutting asphalt and concrete with stones. They're covered with man-made diamonds. They're not gem quality, they're industrial, but they are real diamonds. And we've been able to make those since 1953. So first of all, you know it really doesn't take millions of years to get a diamond, is that correct? Well, how many of you though do know that in the year 2003 we started making gem quality diamonds in only a matter of minutes. The problem was it took tremendous pressure and tremendous temperatures to do it. Please notice I give the citations here on many of the slides. This comes from Nature Magazine back in 2003. Nature Magazine is the single highest scientific journal in the world for evolutionists published in the United Kingdom. And if you are an evolutionist and you can get your research published in Nature, you have made the A list. Are you with me? So I'm talking from the... highest level of evolutionary sources i have no problem quoting evolutionists and their research because they find lots of stuff that proves creation they got more money than we do you know well that was 2003 and we were started making man-made diamonds of gem quality in only a matter of minutes but if you know anything about a scientist you know that once we learn how to do something the next few questions are how do you do it cheaper faster or both and the very next year we started making gem quality diamonds in only 12 hours at much lower temperatures and much lower pressures published in New Scientist which is again a highly respected evolutionary journal well that's only 12 hours now right but at much lower pressures much lower temperatures but if you know anything about a scientist you know that once we learn how to do something the next two questions are how do you do it cheaper faster or both correct and so in the year 2006 we started making pure gem quality diamonds up to 10 carats in size in only 24 hours again this was published by nature magazine the highest evolutionary source in the world now ladies remember I'm here to help you Um, I would point out that today and and I'm not trying to sell diamonds I don't know any of the jewelry stores here but I can absolutely assure you that either in Tuscaloosa or definitely in Birmingham today you can go into a jewelry shop and you have a choice between a natural diamond and a man-made diamond and the man-made diamond of equal quality will be fifteen to fifty percent cheaper men were you listening men if you weren't listening, I can assure you the ladies were. But I'm not finished. I want to share with you a piece of information that comes from 2015. In the year 2015, we actually started making gem-quality diamonds with no pressure in only eight hours using the heat from an oxyacetylene torch, the kind you use in an automobile body shop. Hello? Yeah, we made small, real diamonds in only eight hours with no pressure and only using the heat from an oxyacetylene torch. So please tell me, does it take millions of years to get a diamond? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, tonight the correct response to all these kinds of questions will be not a chance. Okay? So get ready. We're going to try this again. So does it take millions and billions of years to get a diamond? Not a chance. Very good now again you hear a lot about gold these days so let's talk about gold now please understand I do not ask trick questions in any presentation okay so if I do ask a question it's legitimate and so I want to ask all of you a legitimate question you hear a lot about gold these days again radio TV and so forth uh, magazines how many of you would like to be worth one billion dollars tomorrow only it's not that question it's funny i only got six hands i thought i would have gotten more i guess i should ask you how many of you would legitimately like to be worth one billion dollars tomorrow that's more hands okay i'm going to tell you how to do it and again i'm absolutely up front with you about this this is how you do it you raise a child or a grandchild that can figure out how to get the gold out of seawater and you will be worth one billion dollars tomorrow. There's enough gold dissolved in the oceans to make everyone in this room a billion dollars more every day for the rest of your life. The problem is nobody has ever been able to figure out how to get it out. But if you raise a child or a grandchild that can finally figure it out, you will be worth a billion dollars tomorrow, and I'm absolutely sincere. But, of course, evolutions will tell you it takes millions and billions of years to get gold deposits. Now, in the DVD of uh, tonight's presentation, I actually have a different uh, piece of information. Um, but in there, I actually show that the massive gold deposits at Papua New Guinea could have formed in as little as five hours. That's research that goes all the way back to the 80s by an evolutionary-believing geologist. But the entire, and it is huge, gold deposit could have been formed in only five hours. But that's on the DVD. Tonight I have something new for you. You see, we now know that gold forms in the ground instantaneously. Gold deposits are made by earthquakes. You see, remember that the water in the oceans has gold dissolved in it, correct? Well, so does the water in the ground. And when an earthquake occurs, Massive movement of land sliding against each other causes friction. The heat from that friction dissolves well; it literally vaporizes the water and leaves the gold behind. And so we now know that gold can form in the ground instantaneously. So, does it take millions and billions of years to get gold deposits? See, you forgot your line. And it was only t- two minutes. Just come on. Does it take millions and billions of years to get a gold deposit? Not a chance. Well, let's move on to other subjects. What about stalactites and stalagmites? Now, I know that you have caves here in Alabama and of course in other places that you're familiar with, but how many of you have ever gone to those caves that have stalactites and stalagmites? You, come on, Carlsbad Caverns, New Mexico, Luray, Virginia, Mammoth, Kentucky, I, you know, right? And, and I know there's some caves here as well. Uh, I think they're over towards Fort Payne, but um, tell me something if you would please when they took you to those caves and they showed you those things didn't the guide take you over to the entrance and the guide said to you two things they said you know it takes 10 20 million years to get a cave like this come on folks the correct response here was "Ooh." okay okay we'll try it again they say, you know, it takes 10, 20 million years to get a cave like this. And the second thing they say is, don't touch that. <laughs> It'll take a million years for that thing to grow back. You know? <laughs> Let's just take a look. Does it really take 10, 20 million years to get, you know, stalactites and stalagmites? Now, I have an entire hour-long presentation of of these things from caves all over the world. Tonight I'm just going to show you two examples but it's just because it's a sample. Now do stalactites and stalagmites grow slowly as evolutionists claim, right? Now this is the photograph taken in a cave in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. The Yucatan Peninsula is honeycombed with limestone caves and here you see actual pottery made by Mayan Indians that is roughly 1,300 years old. This is called pre-Columbian. And so the pottery is dated as about 1,300 years old. However, notice that on top of the pottery here, left in this cave, we have the stalagmite. Is that correct? And according to evolutions, this took less than 1,300 years. Is that right? Oh. Let me show you another example this comes from Australia here we see a man-made cave although technically it's a tunnel but this is a man-made cave it's hundred and sixty foot long cut in 1857 the photograph you see here was made in 1997 here you see beautiful flow stones here you see curtain stalactites up here and all of this formation occurred in only 140 years so please tell me, does it take 10, 20 million years to get a limestone cave? Not a chance. I'll also ask you another bonus question tonight. If you've ever been in these caves, have you ever seen where two stalactite stalagmite actually came together and then formed what's called a column? Have you ever seen that? I've seen them all over the world. Next question Have you ever seen one that was broken? You see, the earth, the land, literally is constantly moving. Now, it's very slow. Most of the time you don't feel it. Of course, earthquakes can cause it to occur quickly in a short distance. But the fact of the matter is that the earth is constantly moving. I've seen caves all over the world. I have yet to see a broken column, which means they have to be young. Because if they were old, they would be broken. Uh-huh. Well, let's go on. Now. What about the polar ice caps? Now remember that in the Arctic there is no polar ice cap, it's really just ice floating on water. But there is a polar ice cap on Greenland and a polar ice cap in the south in Antarctica. Those are the true polar ice caps. And evolutionists will tell you that it takes a long time, millions of years even, to get these polar ice caps. Now in Antarctica, oh by the way, um, let me explain here. Um, In Antarctica, at what is called the Vostok Hole, now Vostok is the Russian word for East direction East Vladivostok means Prince of the East that's the, what the word means and um, so Vostok is East and at the Vostok hole in Antarctica Russian scientists have drilled all the way through the ice to the bottom and at what's called the Dome Sea Hole French and Italian scientists have drilled all the way through the ice there Now. In Greenland, American scientists have drilled all the way through the ice in Greenland. Do you know what the Americans found under the ice in Greenland? They found leaf litter and dead insects. At one time, Greenland was green. Hello? But but in Antarctica, the Russians and the French and the Italians, in drilling through the ice, they bored down, taking cores and they exposed layers inside the ice. Maybe some of you have seen pictures of this sort of thing, okay? And these evolutionists claim that these little layers in the ice are like tree rings, that each one represents a year. And so while the Russians say they found 400,000 layers, the French and the Italians say they found 800,000 layers, claims that each layer equals one year, just like tree rings, And therefore, the ice was 400,000, 800,000 years old at those locations, correct? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I used to teach that when I was an evolutionist, but I don't believe it anymore, and I'd like to show you why. Now, I'm going to ask all of you in the room, because I'm looking around and none of you are old enough to remember, but what I want you to do is, in your mind, come back with me to World War II. So just in your mind, coming back with me to the year 1942. In 1942, two Boeing B-17 Liberators, six Lockheed P-38 fighters, these Lightnings, took off from the United States to go to Europe to be a part of the war effort. Now, they cannot fly directly across the Atlantic to England because they don't have that kind of fuel capacity. We didn't have mid-air refueling in those days. And so they cannot fly directly to England. So how do they get across the Atlantic? You don't fly across it, you fly around it. How do you fly around the Atlantic? It's really quite simple. You fly to Bangor, Maine, you fuel up, then you go to, well, either Newfoundland or you go to the southwest corner of Greenland, you fuel up, and then you fly to Iceland, and you fuel up, and eventually you'll get to England. And these eight planes took off from the United States. They got to the southwest corner of Greenland, fueled up, flew over the polar ice cap of Greenland, went out over the water heading to Iceland and ran into a white-out blizzard. Now, I know you don't know anything about white-out blizzards in Tuscaloosa, but maybe some of you have lived someplace where you have familiarity with whiteout blizzards. That's when it's snowing so hard you can't see the hood of the car. I've been in lots of them. But you have to understand, I've been in Siberia a lot. And, um, well, here's the problem. They couldn't find the airfield to land, and they couldn't find Iceland. So they turn back. They have no choice. But the problem is they don't have enough fuel to get back to the base in southwestern Greenland, and so they have only two choices. They can either land on the top of a glacier in Greenland, or they can ditch in the water and die in five minutes, a la Titanic. I bet you know which decision they made. (laughs) But here's the thing, you see the first of the eight planes went with the wheels down and when it hit the ice on top of the glacier it flipped over. Now any pilot will tell you that's a bad landing. So the other seven planes went in with the wheels up. It took nine days for the crews to be rescued but no man was lost. But the planes were simply left there because they were damaged. It was much cheaper to just make new planes, much faster to just make new planes. So these damaged aircraft were left there as basically useless and worthless. However, 42 years later, uh, sorry, 46, 46 years later, um, there were a couple of very enterprising men in Kentucky who remembered the planes were up there. Now, today they're valuable. There's a lot of money in antique military aircraft because there's so few of them. And so they decided to go get the planes. It was just a good venture, okay? Now, evolutionists will tell you that these little lines in the ice here represent a year. Now, first of all, I mentioned that they found 400,000 lines, 800,000 lines, correct? Actually, if you read the paper, that's not what happened. You have to understand that as they started to drill down in the ice, you see the lines. They're, They're there. But how many of you have ever gone into the kitchen, opened up a refrigerator freezer door, and you've seen two ice cubes melting together in the freezer? Because ice sublimes even in a frozen state. It still flows, correct? So first of all, when they started drilling down, they did find the lines. That's absolutely true. But about halfway down, the weight of the ice is so massive that those lines get completely obliterated. You can't see them. They simply extrapolated the rest. However, it's only been 46 years. Now, please tell me. They say each of these lines represents a year. When they found the planes in 1988, please tell me how much ice and snow was on top of the planes when they found them. And please understand, the planes do not sink in the ice. Where they landed is where they stayed. But please tell me, how much ice and snow did they find? I'll kind of make an auction out of this, okay? Because I know in Alabama you like auctions. So... So I'm going to take some bids. How how much ice and snow did they find on top of Plains after only 46 years? Come on, bids? I have no opening bid. I'm sorry? I'm sorry, 10 feet? Okay, I have an opening bid of 10 feet. Now, sir, it's only been 46 years. This is supposed to be a year. Okay, I have a bid of two feet. Now, see, Pastor, he's been watching the prices right. He went down and dirty. <laughs> okay, so I have an opening bid of two feet, ten feet, do I have one third and final bid? No third bid? Five. Five? Okay, <laughs> okay. All right, I have two feet, five feet, and ten feet. Okay, I'm going to stop the bidding because y'all are never going to get there. You see, actually what they found was 250 feet. They found 250 feet of ice and snow on top of those plains you see they knew where the planes were supposed to be but when they got there they couldn't find them they actually had to find radar that will penetrate ice they found the planes 250 to 270 feet below the surface they had to come back and get a machine that does not drill it melts a hole through the ice that big and they melted a hole down to the planes ladies and gentlemen That is a Lockheed P-38 Lightning, 250 feet below the surface. You see, they got down to it, melted out around it to take this picture. This one plane was in such good condition. They disassembled her, brought her up the hole, brought her back to Kentucky, reassembled her, and today she's flying. Oh, yeah, it's a great story. And I'll prove to you that she's flying today. Her nickname, by the way, is Glacier Girl, <laughs> but, um, but she was found 250 feet below the surface. Now, let's just do a little math, okay? Now, that means that in 46 years, 250 feet of ice and snow had formed on top of the plains. That's an average of 5.4 foot per year for 46 years which means that the Antarctic ice cap, which is 3,000 meters thick, or roughly 10,000 feet, it's two miles, would have formed in only 2,000 years. Please tell me, does it take millions of years to get a polar ice cap? Not Not a chance. As a matter of fact, if any of you have lived where there was significant snow and they did not put salt on the roads, anybody ever visit, maybe vacation, anybody ever go someplace where they plowed, they didn't salt the roads, they plowed them. A couple of them, okay. Now I grew up in California. In the high Sierras they plow, okay. Now please if I can get whoever raised their hand here to take a look. When they plow snow, isn't that what it looks like along the side of the road? Uh-huh. You see each of these lines is dirt on top of a layer of snow and it snows and then there's a dirt layer and then there's snow and a dirt layer. Now, if you compress that, it looks exactly like the ice in the polar ice caps. And I said that the plane was flying today. I've taught many times in New England, but a few years ago I was in New England teaching, and I did not know that she was going to be there, but coincidentally, Glacier Girl was making a visit. And I found out about it, took several pictures of her while she was there. Today, that plane that you saw that looked like that, today that plane, looks like that. Absolutely gorgeous. One of the flu, just one of the very few flying P-38s in the world today. Yeah, she's gorgeous. So I guess it doesn't take millions and billions of years to get polar ice caps, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, they did take a look at a couple of the others, but they were so damaged they weren't worth trying to bring back but this one was in such good condition they just disassembled her, brought her back, straightened out some sheet metal and so forth and put her back in flying shape. Yep. But the other seven are still in the ice. And let's take a look at does radiometric dating prove that rocks are billions of years old? Now when I use a word that I think you might not know, I will always define it for you. And if you're not familiar with what this word radiometric means, let me explain. This word means the supposed use of the decay of radioactive materials to supposedly measure the amount of time it has been since a creature lived or an event occurred. And so radiometric, the use of radioactive material decay to supposedly measure the amount of time since a creature lived or an event occurred. I know that many of you have heard of carbon-14, but there are many other methods too. Okay, there's potassium, argon, rubidium, strontium, there's a whole variety of these things. But you've all probably heard of carbon-14, that's the most common. And uh, here's the thing, none of them work. Any knowledgeable evolutionist knows they don't work. It's the evolutionist who believes in evolution and is not aware of all the flaws that still teaches it. But any knowledgeable evolutionist doesn't even use them because they know they don't work. You see, all of these various methods start with six false assumptions, but carbon-14 has 20 scientifically false assumptions required to make it work. Now, would you agree with me that if you are using six false assumptions or 20 false assumptions, you cannot possibly get a reliable date, is that correct? And that's science. We have a video on why carbon-14 doesn't work, a video on why potassium argon doesn't work, and we show the 20 scientific reasons that carbon-14 doesn't work, the six why the others. Now, first of all, that's science, but let's think biblically for just a moment, because if you think biblically for just a moment, there's one more flaw in carbon-14 because the flood of Noah would drastically change the carbon cycle on earth throwing off all carbon-14 dates carbon-14 is also thrown off by the nuclear testing that was done in the 40s and 50s above ground there's all kinds of things we know today and we don't know why but we do know that the core of the Sun circulates rotates at a different speed than the rest of the Sun and we now know that it has an effect on decay rates on earth but we don't know why but we know it's true and uh, let me ask another question this is a think question please tell me if these things worked, now they don't but if they worked and you could use two different methods on the same rock wouldn't you expect to get approximately the same result I mean, you know, we're not asking for perfection here, but, but if they worked and you could use two different methods on the same rock, you would expect to get approximately the same result, correct? And again, it doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, after all, what would you say? If they were within, say, 5% of each other, we might say they appear to maybe work. Mm-hmm. That's, okay, that's two people. Apparently, the rest of you want to negotiate. Uh, how, about, how about 10%? If they were within 10%, would you agree they appeared to work? Okay, same two people plus one. Now, I'm up to three. Okay, what about 15%? If they were within 15% of each other, would you say that they appeared to work? Okay, two, three, now four. Okay, well, of course, I, I have the funny feeling you've already figured this all out, you know, because the fact of the matter is that there are tremendous contradictions between two different methods used on the same rock. Now, I'm only going to give you three examples tonight, because it's just examples tonight. But again, we have whole hours on 14, whole hour on potassium argon, if you want it. But let's take a little look. Now, this is Sunset Crater National Monument in Arizona. If you ever go to the Grand Canyon and you use the East Road to get up to the east end of the canyon, you go right by it. It's a beautiful spot. It's worth pulling in for at least a short time, if not spending a half a day there. But this is a, a small volcano, really, and the cinder cones at the top that are an orange color and so forth. At sunset, it just glows, which is where the name Sunset Crater came from. Now, if you know anything about Arizona, and New Mexico, the southwestern part of the United States, you know that there have been Native Indians there for roughly 3,000, 3,500 years after the Tower of Babel experience, and so, well. We know that this volcano erupted approximately 900 years ago. Now 900 years is not that long to figure that out, but it erupted about 900 years ago. And we know that there were Native American Indians there because in lava flows and cinder cones from this eruption, we actually found Native Indian artifacts. So we know they were there. When you drive in, you pass foundations of ancient dwellings there's a trail on the east end going out towards the Painted Desert that in fact uh, there's cave dwellings so I mean we know they were there right and we found their artifacts inside so we know the eruptions about 900 years ago and we know they were there at the time now when it comes to supposedly scientifically dating volcanic materials the only method that's used is called the potassium argon method and so we took some samples something to a lab that does potassium argon testing, we did not tell them where it came from, we just paid them to do the test. And they came back and told us that this rock, which we know is about 900 years old, was, according to their test, 210 to 230,000 years old. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's more than 15% different. Hello? Ah. Number two, this comes from Australia. But again, this is a piece of volcanic rock. There's volcanoes along the east coast of Australia. And uh, inside this piece of volcanic rock is a piece of dead wood. Now what happened? This volcano erupted, lava flowed down the side of the volcano. It killed standing live trees surrounding the trees, but it also encapsulated dead wood on the forest floor. Now this piece of wood was completely enclosed within the rock. There is no possibility of contamination. Nothing could get in or get out. And of course since this is wood, the heat of the rock turned the wood into charcoal. That's why it's black. Okay, That's charcoal. Well obviously since this is charcoal we can use the carbon-14 technique and since this is volcanic rock we would use the potassium-argon method, correct? So we took samples, sent them away to labs, didn't tell them where they came from, paid them for the results. Now, I don't accept these dates. I want you to understand that. I really don't accept these dates at all. But the lab that did the carbon-14 date on the wood said that the wood was 45,000 years old. I don't agree with that at all. But that's what they got. But the lab that did the potassium-argon date on the rock surrounding the wood said that the rock was actually... 44 million years old I think that's more than 15 percent how about you well I have one last example now you'll see why we do these things in the sequence that we did them you see I want you to go with me to Hawaii I'm sure you all like to do that and uh, we're gonna go back to 1801 on the big island of Hawaii there was a massive eruption now understand that uh, for instance Mount St. Helens, Mount Pinatubo erupted with tremendous force but the volcanoes of Hawaii are not known for tremendous explosions the Hawaiian volcanoes are known for massive lava flows they just pour lava I mean one volcano has been pouring out lava for decades and so they're known for these massive lava flows not big explosions Now, in 1801 uh, this eruption occurred and there were human beings there to document it we know exactly what happened right now I'm not a proud person but I would like you to at least take a little you know thought of the difficulty in making some of these slides for you but let me show you now this uh, well this is showing underwater volcanoes now last night on those maps I showed you there are 20,000 underwater volcanoes in the North Pacific alone. Now, this is illustrating an underwater volcano that's sticking out of the water. So that is going to represent our Hawaiian island, okay? Now, watch carefully, because in 1801 there was an eruption. Apparently you missed it. The correct response there was, ooh. Okay, so here we go. 1801, there was an eruption. Much better. Now, again, these are massive, massive lava flows. The lava came out of the top of the volcano, down the side of the volcano, into the Pacific Ocean, and went all the way down the side of the volcano to the bottom, to the sea floor. 2.6 miles down. A few years ago, we got this bright idea. Let's send a robot down that slope. It is one continuous slope. We're going to send a robot down that slope. We're going to take some samples, do some potassium argon dates, and see what we get. And so we sent that robot down the side. We sent it down eight-tenths of a mile, came back, and got a potassium argon date of zero million years old. Now, technically, that is correct, technically. You see carbon-14 decays very very quickly carbon-14 is actually a proof that the earth is young and it's the only thing it's good for think with me for just a moment carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,730 years so every 5,730 years half of what you had disappears now that means for the sake of those here tonight you cannot use carbon-14 to date anything supposedly older than 17 and one-half half-lives, which is equal to 103,000 years. And the reason is because it becomes so insignificant you can't read it. The most, you know, the most sensitive instrument on Earth today cannot read carbon-14 beyond 17 and a half half-lives. But here's the point. We cannot find any natural coal, natural oil, natural gas, or carbonaceous clay in the world that does not have significant measurable carbon-14. And that means that all the coal, all the oil, all the natural gas, all the carbonaceous clays in the world, and by the way, Alabama has a significant carbonaceous clay deposit. I've been there. Um, But it all has to be less than 100,000 years old. It cannot be 300 million. It cannot be 360 million. It cannot be 100 million, because if it were, there'd be no carbon-14 there. And so, by the way, if you ever, talking to somebody about these things, and they'll say to you, oh, well, you know, they've dated dinosaur fossils as uh, 65, 70 million years old using carbon-14, I want you to look them right straight in the eye and laugh hysterically. Come on, practice. More practice. It proves they don't know what they're talking about. It is impossible to use carbon-14 to get a date of 65-70 million years old, and when they say that, just laugh hysterically. The thing is though that potassium argon is exactly the opposite. It decays very, very slowly. Now we know that this eruption occurred in 1801, correct? Well, so we know it's 220 years ago, correct? Ah, well, therefore, using the potassium argon method, which cannot be used for hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands, it's supposedly only good on millions and hundreds of thousands, but cannot be used for a hundred or a thousand. Well, if it's only 220 years old, zero million is correct, you see, okay? So we said, okay, let's send that robot down. So we sent it down two miles, took a sample, came back and got a data of 12 million years old. We said, well, that's interesting let's send it down to the bottom so we sent it down 2.6 miles, came back out of a potassium argon date of 21 million years old from material that we know is 220 years old you see how these things simply don't work and any knowledgeable evolutionist knows it and if you want more information on that just see me at the table but let's go on to some other things, I had mentioned coal I don't know if any of you uh, Perhaps came from northern Michigan sometime in your life, but this is a photograph from northern Michigan. Now here you see a natural layer of anthracite coal. Now anthracite coal is the hardest, densest, blackest coal there is. Anthracite's the really good stuff. Hello? Yeah, now of course you've got a lot of coal in Alabama, Um, but, but this is the hard anthracite type stuff. Now you only find natural gas, natural oil, natural coal, between layers of sedimentary rock. you only find them between layers of sedimentary rock. Now what is sedimentary rock? You may remember from school there's only three basic kinds of rock, igneous, metamorphic, and sedimentary, correct? And of course sedimentary comes the word sediment. But sedimentary rock can be correctly defined as simply layers of dried out mud. Sedimentary rocks, scientifically, are just layers of dried-out mud. And if you look at the photograph, you see layers of dried-out mud below and above. Here, you can see it for yourself. Now anybody that knows anything about coal formation will tell you, it takes 10 feet thick layer of dead plant and wood material all in one place, all at one time, compressed 10 to 1 to get anthracite coal. So you have to have a layer ten foot thick of dead plant and wood material all in one place all at one time compressed down to one foot ten to one to get anthracite coal if you compress it two or three to one you get brown lignites you compress it five six to one you get bituminous medium grade coals but you've got to go ten to one to get anthracite here is the problem in the states of utah colorado and wyoming we have pure layers of anthracite coal two hundred foot thick and 300 foot thick. We haven't even started mining the bottom layer. We're still working on the top layer. We have enough coal there to last 300 years. Oh yeah. Now think with me for just a moment. That means that at some time in the past there had to be layers of dead plant and wood material 2,000 and 3,000 foot thick all in one place all at one time with enough mud on top of them to compress them down to 200 and 300 feet and I would suggest to you that only a worldwide flood could do that and you find the darndest things in coal you really do Now tonight I'm going to show you one but you have to come back on Wednesday night to see some more you see this is called a teaser folks okay I'm gonna show you one but you gotta come back Wednesday night to see some more. But you find the darndest things in coal. For example, this dinner bell. This dinner bell was found in 1944 in medium-grade coal in the state of West Virginia, but the coal was supposedly more than 300 million years old. Anybody here got a problem with that? This has been authenticated, ladies and gentlemen. Now, the bell itself, I called it a dinner bell, but I'm going to actually say it was used for a different purpose. But nonetheless, it's the size of a dinner bell. And, uh, well, it's made out of a very unique alloy. The alloy is absolutely unknown today in modern manufacturing. It's a very unique alloy. And if we turn the bell over and look inside, the clapper is made out of iron. So the clapper here is made out of iron, but the bell is a very unique alloy. But obviously somebody knew how to make it, is that correct? Now I'm going to do something, when something is a fact, it's truth, I simply state it. If something is my opinion or my personal speculation, I will always tell you that. What is the fact about this bell? It was made by humans before the flood of Noah it was then trapped in plant and wood material buried in the Flood of Noah that turned into coal. That's a fact. However, I want to speculate something, my opinion. I want you to take a good close look at the top of this bell. I'm going to show you a picture, close up of the bell. Okay? But we're going to take a look at the top of the bell because the top of the bell looks like that. Now this is my opinion. I'm not trying to get you to believe it. I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm simply saying, in my opinion, I believe, based on looking at what I see here, this was a bell used in pagan worship before the flood. I cannot prove it, but that's my personal opinion. But I don't have a personal opinion. I don't have a speculation unless it's based in good evidence. Because, ladies and gentlemen, in India and at Babylon in the Middle East, we have found bells of very similar shape and style. Oh, but you decide for yourself and uh, what about fossils again they told us it takes millions and millions of years to get a fossil right now tonight I'm going to show you my third most favorite fossil this again is called a teaser Uh, hello if you want to see my first and second most favorite fossil you have to come on Wednesday night but this is my third most favorite fossil tonight I'd like to show you the photograph of a fossil Teddy Barosaurus. Now this fossil, Teddy Barosaurus, fossilized in only four months. Would you like to see where it was found? Apparently not. I guess I have to go into something else, huh? It, you would like to see where it was found? Oh, well let me show you where it's found. This is called the dripping or dropping well on the River Nid in Yorkshire, England. That's the northeast corner of England right up against Scotland and the the North Sea. Now, above here is a mineral spring, and the mineral water flows over the edge and down along the edge of the river, and the water evaporates, leaving a stone waterfall. And the green you see here is algae growing in the water. Now what they did was they put hooks on the bottom of the curtain here of a line and hooks and people come along and they hook stuff on here, leave it there for four months, come back and collect it fossilized. Now let's take a look at how many teddy bears were being fossilized at the time this photograph was taken, okay? So let's count, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. There are 23 teddy bears being fossilized at the time this photograph was taken. In addition to which, we have a bell, a woman's purse, a teapot, a hat, another hat, a sausage, and another bell. And if any of you can explain this one to me, I would appreciate it because I have never, ever figured this one out a plastic lobster <laughs> would you please tell me why you want to fossilize a plastic lobster I mean wasn't it stiff enough to begin with so is fossilization a rapid or a slow process excuse me oh it's rapid as a matter of fact if you come to understand what occurs in the fossilization process you will come to realize it has to be rapid fossilization cannot occur slowly But let me emphasize this with a few more pictures. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a man-made coil of rope that has fossilized. It comes from the Czech Republic. You can read it right here on the sign. And it only took two weeks. So is fossilization a rapid or a slow process? Rapid. Now, I'm not going to call on you, but I would like to get a hand raised. How many of you here are fishermen, fisherwomen? You like to fish for fish. I mean, do we have anybody here? We have three there, four, five, six. Okay, I'm not going to call on you, but you six are going to be my my witnesses here. You are my professional witnesses. Okay, would you agree that is a fossil fish? Can I get agreement here? Agreed. Okay. Now I'm going to share with you a statement made by the evolutionist who found this fossil fish. And I want to genuinely uh, congratulate, applaud, however you want to do it, recognize this evolutionist, because he did not allow his religion to get in the way of a good scientific observation. And I think that when an evolutionist does not allow their religion to get in the way of a good scientific observation, we must must acknowledge it. And I'm genuine when I say that. Because the paleontologist evolutionist who found this particular fossil fish said, Based upon what he saw in the fossil, the fish had fossilized in only five hours or less. I mentioned I've been to Brazil 16 years doing mission work. This comes from Brazil. This comes from what is called the Santana Formation in the nation of Brazil. We found fossilized gills, fossilized muscles, fossilized stomachs, and not just in this fish, but many others. I do have the citation down here, but I want to quote from this research. I'm quoting this evolutionary believing paleontologist, quote, What is clear is that the fossilization process took place moments after the fish died and was completed within only a few, probably less than five hours. However, in his report, he went on to write this, and again I quote, In this case, quote, instantaneous fossilization unquote is suspected to have been the very cause of death. Apparently you didn't hear what I just said. <laughs> he just said this fish was D.O.A. fossil. Now please tell me if you can die from fossilization is it a rapid or a slow process? Oh, it's rapid. And again, if you come to understand what occurs in the fossilization process, it has to be rapid. It cannot possibly be slow. And then, of course, since we are here tonight, and I noticed the last two nights, we had uh, a couple nights ago, we had a beautiful full moon here on Saturday night, and almost that last night, if you could see it through the clouds and so forth. Uh, So I'm sure that all of you, having seen the full moon just a couple days ago, noticed that it is uh, moving away, correct? You all did notice the moon's moving away, Right. You didn't notice the moon is moving away? Where are your powers of observation? The moon is is moving away at a phenomenally, a staggeringly fast rate. Are you ready to be staggered? Okay, I'll ask the question again. Are you ready to be staggered? Yeah, because the moon is moving away at a staggeringly fast rate. The moon is moving away at an inch and a half a year. Come on, aren't you staggered? You should be staggered. Apparently you just don't understand the problem. We can measure this. You see, we landed on the moon six times between 69 and 72. We left mirrors on the moon, and today we simply shoot lasers against those mirrors, and you can actually measure that the moon is moving away at an inch and a half per year average. Now, with that in mind, it may not sound like much. I realize it almost sounds foolish to bring it up, but here's the problem. You see, that means that if the moon is only 6,000 years old, as the Bible says, then it has only moved 9,000 inches away from the earth since creation. That's only 750 feet. Now, 750 feet is not much in 239,000 miles. I agree, okay? But you don't have to believe me. You can prove this for yourself. Today, all you need is a laptop computer. I'm not so sure some tablets wouldn't do the calculation all you have to do is put the distance of the earth and the moon that's 239,000 miles average the mass of the earth and the moon plug the formula for the law of gravity into it. Now all of you have experienced gravity since you were born, hello actually since you were conceived and um, okay look if you don't you all do know about the law of gravity right? right I'm not asking if you know the formula but you do know about the law of gravity and you know that the closer two objects are, the greater the attraction, correct? It's an inverse square law. If you half the distance, you quadruple the force. Now, all you have to do is plug this stuff into a laptop computer. You can prove this for yourself. Think with me. If you put that into a laptop computer, you hit enter and go back in time. Well, if you go back one year, the moon is one and a half inches closer. Is that correct? Another year, another inch and a half, right? but as the moon starts coming back towards the earth what happens the force of gravity starts to go up and the moon starts coming back at a foot a year and you keep going back it starts coming back at a mile a year Now, again you don't have to believe me you can put this in a laptop and prove it for yourself you go back 1.4 billion years in time and the moon would hit the earth But evolutionists say that they are the same age, 4.6 to 5 billion, suppose, years old, which means that according to evolutions, the moon must have been attached to the Earth for the first 3.6 billion years, and then it's been moving away only for the last 1.4 billion. Have I got that right? Excuse me? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, we all know that the moon was never touching the Earth. Come on, folks. If the moon was ever touching the Earth, it'd still be here. but also the moon could never have been really close to the earth either you see there's something called the Roche distance R-O-C-H-E it's basically 11,500 miles but the moon could never have been that close to the earth because if it ever had been that close the force of gravity would be so strong we'd break the moon up into pieces and we'd have a ring and not a moon hello So this helps to prove that, in fact, the Earth and the Moon are young. But let's take it a little further. I mentioned that, uh, well, the Moon is there and it's moving away, but not much and so forth. But what is the primary impact of the Moon physically on the Earth? It's tides, correct? Now, I realize in Tuscaloosa you don't think about the tides a whole lot, but I live in Orlando, Florida. I live on one of the highest pieces of land in central Florida. I'm 115 feet above sea level. Hello. We think a lot about tides in Florida. Now, again, at 239,000 miles away, the force of gravity between the Earth and the Moon is 20 quadrillion tons of force. The actual number is 22. 22 quadrillion tons of gravitational force hold the Moon in orbit around the Earth. And if you've got 22 quadrillion tons of force, you can move a lot of water. And it's what causes tides, right? But let's think of something. Again, if we were to go back in time, again, you can prove this in your laptop computer, but if we were to go back in time, well, as the moon kept closer to the Earth, the tides would get higher and higher, correct? Again, you don't have to believe me. You can prove this for yourself. You go back one-half billion years, the tide would rise one mile high twice a day. Now, how high is Tuscaloosa above sea level? Uh, Not a chance, not even close, is that correct? So this then begs the question, do you know how to breathe underwater? (laughs) And how fast would the continents erode with a tide that rises one mile high twice a day? Tuscaloosa wouldn't even be beachfront property, it'd already be underwater. Hello? Hello? Yeah, you see, you start to see these things. You start to realize there's all kinds of things. Now, when I started teaching on creation science back almost 50 years ago, we had about 220 scientific proofs the Earth was young. Evolutionists had not one proof it was old. Today, we have over 350 scientific reasons we know it's young, consistent with 6,000, and they still don't have one. Now, I'm going to stop in a moment, but I want to talk about this one last one because you have to be answering this one to people. You have to know the answer. Now, there's more on the DVD. I've got others on there too, but I'm going to stop with this one. Now, in order for you to understand what I'm about to say, you have to just agree to one thing, okay? There's only one hurdle you have to get over. The one hurdle you must get over is the term late year is not a time. The word light year is a distance. It's not a time, it's a distance. It's the distance that light travels in one year at the current speed of light as measured on earth at this time. It's roughly 5.83 trillion miles. Now, with that in mind, when you were in school, when I was in school, they taught you the speed of light is a constant. Is that correct? They taught you it was 186,000 miles a second, 300,000 kilometers per second, and they said it was a constant. And then evolutionists want you to think, well, if it's a constant and something is 13.82 billion light years away, it must be 13.82 billion years old. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm here tonight to share with you, we now know scientifically the speed of light is not a constant. We have known the speed of light longer than you think. We have known the actual speed of light since 1676, 100 years before the American Revolution. We knew the speed of light. The Danish astronomer Romer found out what the speed of light was in 17, 1676. And we have actually been able to see it slow down since that time. Now, that's not a very long period, admittedly, but we've actually measured the speed of light slowing down. So remember that the 186 miles per second, that's the speed of light as measured on the earth at this time. But that does not mean it's been the speed of light in the past. Think with me for just a moment. We have never, ever been outside of our solar system to measure the speed of light. Is that correct? There is no remote way to measure the speed of light. You've got to go out there to do it. Now, what you see here, these are all citations. The articles are on my website. You can read it for free. I'm quoting mostly evolutionary astronomers and evolutionary astrophysicists. But we have actually witnessed the speed of light slowing down in the last 350 years. And I want to introduce you to a gentleman right here. His name is Dr. Vladimir Sergeyevich Trotsky. He's a radio astronomer in Nizhny Novgorod, Russia. Nizhny Novgorod is my headquarters in Russia. 325 miles due east out of Moscow on the banks of the Volga River, an ancient university city. It's where my daughter earned her degree in the Russian language and uh, he's a scientist there but he's not a creationist he's an evolutionist but based on extremely good scientific research he says that at one time in the past the speed of light was traveling at 10 million times the speed we measure today now if he's right that means that light could travel across the entire universe in a matter of 3 or 4000 years you start to see that there's problems Now, I said that we have actually measured the speed of light going down over hundreds of years. That's measurements. But I also want to introduce you to this. There are evolutionary scientists who say that they have stopped light and started it again. In these citations you see up here, now I'm going to draw particular attention to this one right here, the second time they did it, December of 2009. There's others up here, too, but we've slowed light down to the speed of a car going down the street. You could literally watch it go down the street like a car, but this one group of evolutionary astronomers and astrophysicists claim on two different occasions, they stopped it and started it again, and I'm quoting them. Now, I've read the papers. I can tell you right now, I disagree with the use of the word stop. I know what they meant, but I disagree with the term, but I just want to ask you something. Whether they stopped it or not, we have slowed it down, we've seen it slow down, but whether they stopped it or not to me is irrelevant. Please tell me if you can slow it down or stop it and start it again, that means you can manipulate it, correct? And if you can manipulate it, it's not a constant. There are very few true constants in the universe. Gravity is one of them, alpha of the fine particle constant is another, but light is not a constant. And so the speed of light has been changing over time, slowing down. As a matter of fact, my last comment on that is, if any of you are familiar with the second law of thermodynamics, it's the law of universal decay, that everything in the universe is in a state of decay, then please tell me, why would light be exempt? Human sin in the Garden of Eden caused the deterioration of the universe, and it's continued to deteriorate at a faster and faster rate so why would light be the only entity in the universe exempt from the second law it's irrational that proves that light must be slowing down if for no other reason Well, i hope that you've seen that there are good scientific reasons many of them very easy to remember and share with others to know that in fact the earth the galaxy the solar system the universe are only six thousand years old exactly as the bible says well you could have said amen But I hope you've seen tonight that there is good science for that. We have lots of it. On my website for free, I mentioned that I have 270 short videos that you can watch for free. Roughly 180 of them have individual arguments that are minor. They're minor arguments. The big ones are on the DVDs. But these are minor arguments for a Young Earth, Young Universe. And so there's lots of information. If you want more, just see me at the table. But I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor. Thank you, sir, for your indulgence. I don't think your mic's on, good brother. (laughs) There you go.